0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Shiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Andrew Walker White joins the show again. On June 9th, 2021, Dr. White joined the show and we had a conversation about what scholars know about early Greek theatre. Today, Dr. White is back on the show, and we're going to speak about a related topic. We're gonna zoom in more on that previous topic, and today we're gonna speak about what scholars know about Athenian theater in the fifth century BCE, so the 400s BCE. Dr. White is professor at George Mason University, based in the US. He specializes in medieval and ancient Greek performance. He's author of the book, Performing Orthodox Ritual in Byzantium, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And Dr. White joins the show today from the US. Welcome back on the show, Andy.
1: Thanks so much for having me, wonderful to be back.
0: It's good to connect with you again, Andy, as always, into into chat. So when we did a little bit of correspondence back and forth and connected about the conversation that we're having now, we wanted to approach the conversation from a century perspective we wanted to approach the conversation from a century perspective and i had asked you what you felt was the prop the best century to come from with this topic in terms of when there is enough evidence in the records to have a constructive conversation that's going to last at least 30 minutes and and go to up to up to an hour just shy of an hour and you had made the suggestion that when talking about athenian theater in the fifth century BCE or, or rather let me let me reframe that because I kind of just answered it <laughs> but <laughs> you know where I'm going with it you know where I'm going with it so yeah. you've made the suggestion that the fifth century is where uh, it would be a it would be a, a good a suitable spot to have the conversation today why did you make the suggestion for this topic to to uh, talk about the fifth century BCE versus earlier well, it's, it's the century that is the most fondly remembered. It is the one that is most carefully curated, um, and it's, the, I mean, really,
1: it is, it is the century that defines tragedy and comedy for us. Um, just about everything that we have, uh, in terms of just defining what a Greek tragedy is like, what it's about, um, it comes from the playwrights who flourished during the fifth century B.C.E. And the, um, Uh, And the same thing goes for a particular brand of comedy, a more raunchy, earthy, politically oriented brand of comedy that is very much associated with the 5th century
0: BCE in Athens. So that there's a little bit of background for the conversation. We'll obviously spend most of the conversation speaking about the 5th century, but so that there is a bit of background and perhaps a juxtaposition. Can you generalize or summarize what's known about Theater in Athens earlier than the sixth, earlier than the fifth century B.C.E. Well, you have
1: you have a variety of festivals dedicated to specific gods, and in each case, um, just as you have. Um uh, athletic competitions in, uh, at Olympia, okay, the Olympic Games have already been running since the, uh, since the early 800s BCE. Now you have musical festivals and where you have um, instrumentalists, singers, dancers, uh, you have choral dances that are done in praise of this or that God. Um, if you're familiar with Delphi, the great oracle to Apollo, there's a whole grand festival there uh, dedicated to uh, Apollo's legendary fight with Python, uh, and uh, you know. So you have a variety of festivals like this, and in in Athens' case, uh, a lot of festivals uh, revolve around the god of Dionysus, and so by the dawn of the uh, by the dawn of the, the 5th century BCE, you've already had uh, a competition uh, in a particular dance form called the Dithyram, which is pretty much the foundation. Uh, and again, uh, the, the standard-issue I- version of the story is that the Dithyram was a very elaborate dance number involving at least 50 men, um, and, uh, or in, in some cases 50 boys. You had competition for male dancers and, and boy dancers, uh, at least I think. Uh, it got very crowded. So the stage was huge. It had to be big enough to hold 50 guys dancing in a circle. Um, but the, the competitions got very elaborate. And the competition was fierce, and originality was the key. So you everybody knew exactly what you were going to be singing or dancing about. Quite often there was a common narrative thread to all of the dances. Uh, like I said, in, in Delphi, everybody had to write a tune that told the story of Apollo and the Python. While well, you had different stories in... Um, uh, in Athens, uh, Dionysus has this bizarre—well, uh, Dithyram is a reference to the fact that, that Dionysus is, technically speaking, born again. Um, he's born of a mortal mother, Semele, of Thebes, um, but Zeus has to f- hide him away and uh, gives birth to him again, so to speak, um, because um, uh, Zeus's wife, Rhea, wants to kill Dionysus when she gets wind of Zeus's affair with Semele. And so the Bithy Ram is, technically speaking, a dance, celebrating the the final rebirth of Dionysus and his entry into the world. Uh, so eventually this festival uh, develops into the, the competition, gets so fierce that the legendary Thespis, who may or may not be a historical figure, steps out from the chorus and starts to talk to the chorus. There's a back and forth, the beginning of dialogue. Um, so all of this has been established by the dawn of the 5th century BCE, that there is a dipping round competition and eventually out of this grows a competition what eventually is known as tragedy a tragic competition comedy also comes out of this as well
0: and and so a lot of uh plays and um you you mentioned tragedy comedy um there's a lot more in the records for athens beginning in the in the fifth century bce is that right Mm -hmm.
1: absolutely
0: okay and i can't resist uh um, plugging a few episodes for everybody listening that is, is re- relevant to, to a couple of the, uh, the mentions that Dr. White made there. So Professor Judy Berenger has been on the show a couple times in the past. So there's one episode that we covered, Ancient Olympia, that, that was published a couple months ago. I don't have the specific date up, but it's it's findable online. About a week ago, within the last two weeks, we also did an episode on Ancient the ancient Olympic games. And so as a reference point, we're doing this recording, Dr. White and I on August seventeenth, 2021 right now. So that's findable as well. So that's the ancient Olympic games. And then also in the last couple weeks, an episode was published with Professor Michael Scott. And we covered in that conversation an overview of ancient Delphi, uh, which was another uh, location that came up in uh, Dr. White's response there. So to create enough Uh, background and context Andy and then we'll work our way into the details. Can you describe what theatre would have been like then in Athens in the 5th century BCE?
1: Uh, It was, uh, again, it was probably a lot less fancy than the stuff we see today. Uh, Naturally, we tend to project our own understanding of theater onto the ancients, but it was um, an amateur affair. It was staged and performed as a public service by citizens of Athens. Uh, The playwrights and the leading actors were not only citizens, they were also uh, veterans. They had served the city in the army. Uh, And in particular during this period, we are talking about uh, men who have served, uh, in the case of Aeschylus, in both the Persian Wars uh, against Darius and against Xerxes. Uh, So uh, we are not talking about professional artists. The the professional artists don't come on the scene until much, much later in the 4th century BCE. Um, uh, The choruses, by the way, uh, very likely were uh, consisted of young military recruits. They were known as Thebes and the Ephibs, again, uh, a reminder of the military connection here. Uh, the Ephibs were war orphans. Their fathers had died defending the city, and as a result, they were raised and educated and trained uh, at the city's expense. And in fact, uh, the Ephibs featured quite prominently in the, the, the pre-game uh, ceremonies, so to speak. Uh, they were paraded in their full armor because after the festival they went off to, to serve their first year, uh, their first tour of duty, and they got to see their classmates dancing on stage in the choruses, the tragic and the comic choruses. Uh, the um, the stage itself was, was a simple flat area. You had um, uh, a very, uh, you had an improvised mock-up, uh, you know, some sheets back uh, behind you. Uh, Term skeine, or which we get from which we get the word scene, refers to the sheet that would very likely uh, mark the uh, the off-stage area behind the actors. Um, we're not clear exactly how much of the dancing space the actors occupied. Perhaps the action was moved out front to the audience, uh, but perhaps um, uh, perhaps not. Uh, the seating itself was originally uh, wooden bleachers that were set up in the agora. The the uh, the uh, Athenian marketplace, the downtown area, if you've been to Athens, uh, you know the Agora is on the north side of, uh, of the Acropolis, and the Theatre of Dionysus that we know today is pretty much on the opposite side. Uh, you, know, you can think about uh, you know, 11 o'clock and 5 o'clock on your dial, you get some idea of how far they are from each other. The theatre um, audience um, remained in the Agora for many years, but then when the bleachers collapsed one year, uh, they decided to use a hillside instead to seat their audiences. Much safer, and since there was a precinct dedicated to Dionysus and a tiny little shed, which they called the temple, um, nearby, uh, they decided to move the theater area to the, uh, the temple of Dionysus. Uh, and eventually uh, that theater, by the, by the mid-5th uh, century BCE, the theater gets very, very elaborate. Um, uh, and the Athenian demagogue uh, Pericles uh, does major renovations, and it gets so big that he actually has to move and 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 rebuild uh, the temple to Dionysus that it was originally uh, designed for. So um, it's it's um, it's a relatively simple affair. You had costumes, you had masks. Everybody wore masks, uh, and um, again, that creates a very interesting dynamic for actors. If you know anybody who's performed with masks, it's a very different sensation. Uh, you have to rely a great deal more on your vocal, your vocalization, you have to rely a great deal more on your body um, and your posture to communicate a character. Uh, uh, so it's it's um, it's a very interesting mix, but it's very, very
0: different from what we think of today as traditional theater, certainly very different from what we think of as traditional tragedy. Yeah. This- as you describe describing the um, the dynamic of a mask, that actually is an interesting thought. I can understand why that would bring a new uh, perplexity and challenge for the actors. the the um, the agora You mentioned a, a few different agoras, and I'm 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 curious. I don't have it up on a map, so I can't give very specific di- di- uh, directions, but. In, uh, you might know which one I'm speaking about. Um, and I'm curious if this Agra, if you know if it was used for theatres, but it is the, uh, I'm going to give some kind of general uh, directions in, in Athens, I hope it comes across and, and uh, makes sense. So there is a, um, it's not close to the Acropolis in that it would probably take about 10 minutes to get to it. So you have the Acropolis, and then there's there's the area that has all the like the the, the, the narrow streets and the, the restaurants. You know that area, right? That I'm speaking about. It's it's connected. Yeah. And then on the other side of that, um, there's there's a common day agora that has like a train station, and then you're getting you're getting really close to that one strip that has a lot of retail um, stores on both sides. Do you know if that more modern day agora was ever used in, in ancient Greece for theater?
1: Well, it's interesting because that that is the place where the Romans built their Agora. So you have a Roman Agora, which is right there where you're speaking of. There's the it's the neighborhood known as the Placa. It's a pedestrian district. Uh, the Mosteiraki train station is right there. Um, but it's the Roman Agora. It has the Temple of the Winds uh, and stuff. Uh, it also has the Great Library of Hadrian, which of course isn't so great anymore. But yeah, the Romans built their Agora sort of at the 12 o'clock point on the clock. If you were looking over over the Acropolis, the Roman Agora is at 12 o'clock. The original Agora is more like 10 or 11 o'clock on the dial. It's a little bit to the west of the Roman Agora. Um, And then um, directly directly south of, of the Acropolis is where you would have the sacred district of Dionysus and the theater of Dionysus.
0: Some of the, those other agoras then that were in existence in the period we're speaking about, are they around today? Like, could, could people go and visit them?
1: Yes. Uh, well, yeah, and in fact, both the Greek and the Roman agoras are open for, for business. Um, the Roman uh, agora gets uh, its share of foot traffic. Um, and again, um, one of the reasons I mentioned the, uh, the grandstand, the wooden grandstand in the Greek agora um, for the original uh, competition, is that they've actually found uh, what they believe to be the post holes, where they would give you know, the support beams that held up the grandstand. They think they've identified them. Uh, the archaeologists, you know, the archaeological team, there has identified a number of spots where the audience is very likely situated for their performances.
0: The agora that I was describing, um, and then you, you, you said that that sounds like the one that was built by the Romans. I think we might be we might be speaking about different spots, which is perfectly perfectly okay um but there's this this one i don't think has like traditional like seating like it wouldn't it wouldn't have the feel of an archaeological site i i remember it so vividly because walking distance about 50 meters is phenomenal shawarma there's there is, uh, or, or rather, not, not sure. I'm in, uh, I'm in T- uh, Tunisia, Tunisia right, right now. So that, that's on my mind.
1: The, the Euros, yeah. But
0: it has phenomenal, phenomenal souvlaki um, there. So, oh, yeah. so, yeah. so, so I, I, I actually, whenever I'm in Athens, I eat at that place, uh, the souvlaki's there quite a bit. Um, yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, how, how would you describe, how would you describe how popular, um in this century theater would have been and what I'm getting at, and you can answer it if if, it's, if, if the, 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 the details just aren't there, what I'm kind of getting at with this question is that were there a lot of different spots throughout Athens where plays were occurring on a regular basis or was this more intermittent where maybe it was a few times per month kind of thing?
1: Well, the, the, the uh, distinguishing feature of the Dionysia is that it was it was held once every year uh, and it was very highly anticipated. Um, everybody, who was anybody, went to the show, um, and uh, the after-show parties were very were, were famous, if not notorious. Uh, uh, you know, Plato wrote, later wrote a dialogue called the Symposium about an after-show party during one of the Dionysia, uh, and um, so it's it, it's. Um, it's uh, one of those uh, times of year, a lot of the other festivals were held more occasionally. With The Olympic Games is one example where it's held only once every four years. Um, but uh, the important thing about um, the Dionysian festivals, there are other festivals, the Linnea, which is uh, another Dionysian festival where plays were performed. It was held every year, but it was held in the off-season, so to speak. and It was primarily designed for uh, a local audience. Uh, the thing that distinguishes the great Dionysia that we're talking about today is that it was essentially an international festival um the sea lanes were open it was held uh in the springtime when anybody could come to athens and watch the shows and uh by sheer coincidence um all of the uh, all of the merchants set up their their tents and made brisk business with uh, with tourist trade uh during this time as well in fact uh, half the half the fun of the Dionysia. Was uh, was the marketplace, and uh, there were actually uh, regulations about how to conduct yourself during the Dionysia. You couldn't gouge your customers just because there was a show or things like that.
0: Is there an earlier festival that scholars are aware of, to to your to to your knowledge, when it comes to theater?
1: Um, well, again, um, we have a number of them. I was just it's funny you asking that because I'm leaving through. Um, uh, the, the standard text for this is uh, The Dramatic Festivals of Athens by Sarcopic at Cambridge. And he talks about um, a couple of related festivals the Anth- Anthisteria, the Linnaea, the rural Dionysia. These festivals were, uh, were annual again, uh, but, and they revolved around Dionys- Dionysius again. So it was all, um, all on the same theme, but um, different times of year. Uh, I, you know, so, as, as far as I know, uh, they were held annually. But it's it's one of those things where um, all of these festivals complemented each other, and the fact that the Great Dionysia featured both Dithyram and tragedy, uh, you know, both Dithyram and theater um, tells you that uh, the Great Dionysia, in some ways, was the ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, venue. You can think of the lesser festivals that I just mentioned, sort of like off Broadway or the trial run out of town. Okay, if the shows succeed in those venues, then you can raise them. Uh, for uh, the, the Great Dionysia itself, it's good for
0: prime time, so to speak. And I want to clarify: How many days did the festival run for? And the, and, oh, and, and then, and then, and then, uh, and the second part of that question—I guess it's kind of a second question—but it'd be easy for you, Andy, to tackle in the same response. <laughs> was there regular uh, plays occurring in Athens when the festival wasn't occurring? Well,
1: there was only one venue. That was the theater of dionysus in the precinct of dionysus and um so it was you know the festival was focused on performances there you had days devoted to the dithyram competition one day for the men to compete another day for the boys uh athens at that time had been divided into 10 districts uh, or deems uh, and so each dean provided 50 men and 50 boys you know, they had their own home team, so to speak, to compete in the Dithyrambic competition. And once that was over with, you then had the tragic competition, um, and that, again, each uh, tragic playwright got um, a whole day to themselves. Um, three tragedies, and then uh, a comic skit, a satyr play at the end of the day. Uh, then you had one day, and one day only devoted to uh, the comic competition, uh, the... Uh, Comic plays, the ancient Greek comedies, were shorter. As a practical matter, that was because you had to have uh, enough time during the day for five comic playwrights to compete against each other for prizes. So, um, yeah, you know, so you have uh, the the dithyramb dances were shorter, ten a day. The tragedies were longer form. Um, you could spend an entire day, sun sundown, watching uh, an entire four-play cycle by uh, by the, by the tragedians. And then uh, to wrap up the festival, you'd have um, five comedies in the space of one day.
0: So was it a what's that? Three days? Two days? The, the...
1: Well, it was it was well over a week. Oh. Um, but again, there there may have been other events. Uh, yeah, they, the, the other stuff escapes me. But the, yeah, that that's the basic and uh, the basic focus. And I mean, the festival, if I remember uh, right, took upwards of, of two weeks. And there may have been uh, gaps in the programming, so to speak. There may have been other events. But the ones that I'm more familiar with are the. Uh, is it just the ram of
0: the tragedy and comedy I might and I might be retrodicting a bit but when I think of theater today when I the, the last area aside from uh, Toronto that I was in that uh, was very prevalent for theater theater was Soho in London UK and I think that was two years ago so I think that was in March if I recall of 2019 if I if I recall and so in that area, as you know, or let's say Broadway. I've I've been to a play in Broadway. Uh, I think once once in the past, one time, you you can go almost any day. And you it, you know, there's a lot more modern technology now, right? Um, a place like so- Soho, you hope you hope you can get a ticket. Don't wait last minute because uh, I actually didn't I didn't get into uh, see a play with my with my friend. Uh, so we were unsuccessful. But but the point's still there, right? So you you kind of you know you can go almost any day. You can buy you can buy a ticket, right, and and you can go to a play. So did, did, was that occurring? I don't mean like going to buy a ticket part, but but were aside from the festival or the or some of the aside from the festival, was there um, regular theater going on where every month someone, if they really wanted to, could be a spectator at one of these plays?
1: Actually, no, uh, and that's the other thing that's that's unique about this is that um, all of the tragedies and comedies that we have. Were designed to be performed once and once only. Um, if they won awards, that's great. You get to wear you get to wear a fancy laurel crown for for a couple of weeks. You get bragging rights. But it was one and done. So there were no repertory theaters. There were no repeat performances. And in fact, um, there is a comedy written by Aristophanes that pokes fun at the idea of reviving a play, performing it maybe a second time. Okay. Um, the idea of reviving plays and performing them every night, or, you know, eight times a week, whatever, which is the Broadway standard, um, that would be completely alien, because again, this was done as a public service, and these people, as a practical matter, um, they were doing it as a public service, but ironically they thought they had better things to do with their time than perform. So uh, whether we're talking about Aeschylus or Sophocles or Euripides, Uh, They had day jobs, so to speak, and they had responsibilities as citizens of Athens that they needed to get back to as soon as the festivals wrapped up.
0: You mentioned Aristophanes in your response there. Who were the top, top, more popular playwrights? And I'm I'm going to get to another question about uh, a different uh, playwright. Well, I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up in the question now. So who, who, uh, who are the most known playwrights in the century? the let's say three to it's kind of a leading uh, I kinda know the answer to this because we did an episode. <laughs> I just want to put it out there. I don't wanna act like it's a totally un you know, like I really don't know the know the answer, but I wanna get I wanna get the question in this this episode. So who are the more popular playwrights? But but a question that I, I didn't ask in the last episode that I also want to ask and we can make it part of this uh, question or questions is is there also a playwright that you believe doesn't get as much exposure as that person should?
1: Well, the, the difficulty is that we know so little about the others. We have passing references to them. If we're lucky, we get a snatch or two of a speech here and there. And the the the, fra- the, the tragic fragments, the common fragments, it's it's hard to make head or tail them. It's really hard to assess their value, their aesthetic value or whatever. Uh, because so little is known about the artists, about the plays, etc. You will occasionally get uh, plot summaries uh, mentioned in passing. Uh, but the... Um, and to some extent, uh, basically, the, the ones that we know the most about are the ones who were preserved and and taught um, for over 2,000 years as a standard part of the Greek school curriculum. Uh, the tragic playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, that's in chronological order, and then the comic playwright, Aristophanes, those are the four who represent, um, you know, in the opinion of the Greek academy, so to speak, the ancient Greek academy, the best stuff. These were the guys that had the best stuff, their plays won awards, and their writing was so good that even if they didn't win an award with a particular play, it's still included in the anthologies and it was still taught to school children uh, um, because it was so highly valued for its language, its ideas, uh, the meter, etc.
0: And what's the short, short list that, you, that, that, that uh, the, the more popular playwrights in this century?
1: Well, yeah, and again, um, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and again, the interesting thing being is that Aeschylus and Sophocles were sort of the critics' favorites. They were the ones who walked away with a lot of the awards. Euripides is interesting because he was the crank. He was the dissident. He hardly ever won awards, Um, and yet he is the one who is most beloved, and he is the one whose plays um are most carefully preserved ironically enough uh for for aeschylus we have seven plays for uh sophocles we have seven but for euripides we got like 20 plus it's it's pretty wild
0: (laughs) in this century do women come up at all in the records as it relates to theater in athens
1: um women did not perform and there are serious questions about whether women were actually allowed to attend the shows um, and uh, again, the, the the Greek Greek misogyny is legendary, uh, and uh, Athenian women were supposed to you know, their job was to stay home, let the boys go downtown and do whatever the boys wanted to do. Uh, this is where Socrates gets to spend all day hanging out with nice young boys uh, in the agora, talking politics and virtue and stuff like that. Um, there is a one-liner from a play by Aristophanes where he has a couple of housewives chatting away and one of them turns to the other, uh, this is again a commentary on Euripides who uh, featured a lot of tragic women in his plays, uh, one wife, housewife, turns to the other and says, you know, I hate it when my husband comes home from watching Euripides, he's always so suspicious, um, because again, uh, Euripides portrays women who go on of terror, kill their kids and things like that. Um, so uh women very likely did not attend any of the plays um they were featured of course in plays but those roles were always played by men so uh even the more famous uh plays were always uh, designed for male actors Uh, and we can only imagine how they would have performed as females uh, on stage
0: okay can you describe a typical play so in the century, and maybe it might be helpful with this um, question and answer if you describe maybe an, exa- an example of a play. Uh, how and then and then I'm, what I'm getting at with the question are the particulars. So how how long approximately was it? Um, you can bring in into if you're going to use a specific example, the, the who the playwright was, how many actors. Etc. Just, just more the composition of a of an example yeah. play.
1: Well, the um, the the way that it was originally set up uh, in in Aeschylus's day, you were entitled. And again, it's interesting because to make sure that it was a fair competition, just as in the Olympic games, you have rules for for the athletic competitions. You had rules for the tragic competitions, for example. Um, you would submit your play to uh, the authorities. If the authorities approved the script, then you hired somebody to. Uh, to pay for the production, basically, and um, the uh, Aeschylus was limited to having two actors, two speaking roles, okay, in addition to the chorus. Uh, Sophocles was able to work, Sophocles and Euripides were able to work with three speaking roles and a chorus, okay, so you can have three actors under Sophocles, only two under Aeschylus, and those are the boundaries within, within which you have to work. Um, with comedy it's a little bit different Uh, again ironically the choruses for comedy uh, if anything were larger than the choruses uh, for tragedy but I'm not sure what uh, Aristophanes would have done with uh, the extra guys dancing around on stage
0: the last time we spoke you had mentioned either largely or entirely in in the early period the early days with theater playwrights weren't paid uh, it was a it was more of a gratis type model they obviously there's obviously a lot of, you can tell there's passion there um, um but uh there wasn't a model of there wasn't like a an income stream that uh we would know today which you, you sell tickets and then someone shows up right uh, but yeah. you, did, you did mention, and I, and I can't remember if it was in the context of the early period, but you did mention benefactors. So it, when we're talking about this century, is it known if there was any benefactors, a more common term would be a, a sponsor, for, for instance, right? Um, is, is it known if anyone or, or um, it might be a bit anachronistic, but, but I think the concepts there, if any companies were, um, were paying for these, um, for these plays?
1: Uh, absolutely, um, and in fact, um, you know, if you think of you know the the, the Tony Awards, the Juno Awards, whatever. Um, uh, today we award the artists, and the producers, the money guys are standing upstage behind the artist as the artist clutches the trophy. Right? Um, in Athens, it was the exact opposite because it was the producer, the the, the chorus funder. Who got the accolades? And in fact, there was a monument just uh, not just a couple blocks away from the Theater of Dionysus, and happens in the middle of the Plaka, uh, that that uh, memorializes one of the one of the benefactors. So um, imagine, um, you know, one of the great producers uh, getting the plaudits and actually getting to memorialize themselves, you know, in marble. Uh, you know, there was a whole uh, there was a whole monumental uh, street where uh, producers got to you know praise their own efforts. Um, you know, thanks, Euripides, I can
0: put the statue up with my name on it. It's that kind of thing. Okay. Back to the, the composition, I want to round that out. Was there, was there always, um, when it comes to theater in the century, would there have always been verbal communication? Would there always have been singing as a, as a part of it? Would there... Would, would there have been instruments in some cases. So I'm asking it bro- broad, but I want to I want to round out the, the, the composition with that, because again, in that last episode, I think you said in the in the really early period, there wasn't yet um, verbal communications, more song and dance. So when it comes to this century, was there always song and dance as part of theater? Was there always verbal communication? Was there music? Can you can you speak into that a bit?
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, tra- tragedy in its in its in its uh, more or less uh, fully developed form um, featured a variety of different uh, elements. You had song and dance. Um, you had arias, the equivalent of arias, uh, by the uh, by the solo performers. Again, the actors. Uh, you also had um, pieces of spoken dialogue. And uh, it was uh, it usually involved a variety of meters. There were different metrical uh, patterns used in the course of a single play, in addition to you know the music and stuff. And the musical accompaniment uh, varied. Um, There is evidence that uh, Aeschylus, for example, might have worked with a kithara, sort of a guitar. So uh, you know Aeschylus' choruses would have sung and danced with power chords. You know, sort of a, a Greek. Pete Townsend or whatever, stroking stroking the strings. But you also had um, an instrument known as the aulots, which is sort of an ancient uh, ancient ancestor of today's oboe, or English horn, Uh, very piercing sound. And that was the one that was used uh, not only for theatrical works uh, but it was also used for military training, believe it or not. When we think of the Spartans going off to battle, it may sound strange, but they had an aulos player uh, in the back, a reed player, uh, sort of giving the orders, so to speak, uh, with this with his, uh, instrument.
0: How many plays approximately survive in modern, modern times that are cited to this century? And to create contrast, and it's probably a difficult... Um, question, but I'm curious what what you infer if you have a notion how many different plays would have been created that would have seen the stage in the in in this century in Athens.
1: Um, quite a few. I mean, if you if you if you think of it as an annual festival, one that featured, um, you know, three tragedians and five comic playwrights competing against each other, uh, you have um, and you know, four a day for tragedy five a day for comedy, you've got upwards of 17 plays um, that in theory could have been recorded somehow and passed down to posterity every year. And what we're, we're talking about, a festival, that was, uh, that was uh, a huge attraction for well over 100 years, 150, 200 years. I mean, the festival continued and it made the transition to uh, having professional actors, and that's when the revivals of old classics became more common. But there were literally hundreds of plays, uh, potentially, uh, that could have been uh, preserved. And again, um, it just wasn't that important to them uh, to preserve everything. But there were a certain number of plays that were carefully curated and preserved, very highly regarded for a variety of reasons. And they are the ones that get passed down to them.
0: In modern times, there's a lot of public interest around the names of actors in yeah. movies and, and and such it's not that directors there's uh, we, right we, there's clearly directors that that get a lot of public attention too but there's a lot of public attention when it comes to the names of uh, various actors this topic it seems like what bubbles to the top is the names of the some of the top more popular playwrights do any actor names bubble to the top when you're looking at this uh, century, where you can where, where you can tell when you've gone through the records that this was a uh, prominent or a popular actor.
1: Well, the uh, the references to specific actors by name are few and far between, and um, and some of the uh, the reports about them come from a much later time. Uh, you know, in, in Roman times, for example, uh, the historian Plutarch will talk about them. Uh, the difficulty there is that um, uh, some of what they say relies more on. Uh, common stereotypes of actors more than anything else, but we know that the that um, that that certain performers were very highly prized. There were rules about how many good actors you could get. Okay, if you had a seasoned veteran, you could you, you could work with this actor one year, but you couldn't work with him the next. Um, you know, uh, it was you know, so you can't think in terms of a, of a professional uh, sports team where you get to keep the same players year in and year out. Okay. Um, you deliberately have to change your personnel from one festival to the next. Uh, the actors eventually get their own awards. Uh, and again, the the, um, the focus of the award ceremonies starts to shift by the end of the 5th century BCE. At the beginning, it's primarily the producer and the playwright that get the honors, but by the end of the 5th century, the actors are much more uh, much more celebrated than they were before. So there's a certain uh, shift in favor of aesthetics uh, and performance uh, as opposed to uh, elaborate production values or fancy writing uh, by the end of the fifth century.
0: Do you know what they were rewarded?
1: Um, there again, there was no monetary uh, award. You you simply got, you know, like I said, bragging rights. Okay, these were citizens again, and these were citizens of Athens who served in the Athenian military. Um, uh, Sophocles, the playwright, uh, was famous for serving as a general in the Athenian army. He was one of the one of the, the generals who served alongside uh, the, the Athenian demagogue Pericles, who himself was a general. Uh, so yeah. Um, Again, they had honors, but there was no money
0: involved uh, more than there was involved the in money writing plays. It was strictly for, uh,
1: it was a, a public honor and um, little more.
0: In a fairly short period of time, under 40 minutes at this point, we covered a lot of ground in this conversation, <laughs> Andy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, is there, wrapping up the conversation soon, is there anything else that's on your mind about this century with athenian theater that you want to make sure gets across in this uh, episode that you feel we haven't covered or haven't covered enough in the dialogue so far
1: well i guess the thing that i would like to emphasize thats mainly because it's 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 what what i'm working on right now where my thinking is that we forget the um the prominence of the oral tradition during this period we think of playwrights sitting in their study and Scribbling things down, there's a trash can nearby for all the rotten ideas. Understand that in, in most cases, these tragedians and, and comic playwrights they composed inside their heads and everything was in their memory locks, so to speak. So, when the time came to rehearse, they simply spoke the lines to the actors, spoke the lines to the chorus, and they directed things uh, on on that score. Everything was transmitted orally. It was only later that somebody said, hey, we should write this stuff down. And there was, by the late 5th century, when people really started to keep an archive of plays, there was definitely a consensus about the stuff that was really, really worth preserving. Um, What happens after that uh, is that these plays are actually taught in schools. And, you know, schoolboys and the occasional schoolgirl Um, got to memorize and perform these plays, not as, you know, school dramas like we have today with kids on stage in costumes and stuff. They actually had to perform everything orally, solo. So imagine somebody doing a one-person show. Uh, And again, there are plenty of examples of that uh, in our own day, one-person Shakespeare plays and stuff like that, really spectacular stuff. Well, kids, thanks to Euripides and Aeschylus, kids uh, got trained... In the in memorizing and performing the greatest uh, plays of uh, Athens' golden
0: age, fifth century B.C.E. And it's not within the purview directly of the episode because we're speaking about the fifth century. But I am cu- yeah. curious. Do, do you know when uh, pl- plays and theaters entered a, a, an educational school school system for boys and girls to to to, to learn?
1: Well, we we know that this is this becomes more formalized and more systematized uh, in the days of alexander the great uh, and particularly in the days of the ptolemies alexander the great successors in egypt they are the ones who build the library in alexandria and who uh... keep uh... archives of all the great plays. they specifically requested that athens provide them with the plays. uh... and again it is the collection that athens sent to alexandria that becomes the foundation for everything that we know about
0: tragedy and comedy today okay it's always great chatting with you andy thanks for coming on the show again
1: thank you so much yeah it's great to be
0: here here. so again everybody the book that i mentioned at the start of the episode that dr white wrote he's author of performing orthodox ritual in byzantium i'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode andy and everybody listening as always wishing you a marvelous journey